like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Paper Ghosts is a production of iHeartRadio. If you lived anywhere near New England in the early to mid-1970s, the names Debbie Spickler, Janice Pocket, and Lisa Joy White were synonymous with a ghost stalking the area. Girls walking, playing, talking to family and friends one minute, moments later, gone. One after the other, from 1968 to 1975, Young girls vanished from Tolland County, Connecticut, in the quiet farming towns of Ellington, Rockville, and Vernon. I grew up here and still live here. It's a place where people run into one another in town, at the lake, in the local grocery. We talk PTA, sleepovers, and town politics. Back then, when the abductions began, panic ensued. Literally, my parents and our neighbors locked our doors and closed the shades. We weren't allowed to play unsupervised in our own yards. People looked at one another differently, you know, with that raised eyebrow. I went to school with the families of the missing. I can remember walking down the hallway 
hearing the whispers. Where is she? That's the missing girl's sister over there. You think her brother did it? It's been over 50 years, and not one of these cases has been solved. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and New York Times best-selling author of 43 true crime books. My passion has always been rooted in the forgotten stories of the missing and murdered. After growing up around so many disappearing children, and later, when a family member of mine was murdered, a case still unsolved, I decided to dedicate my career to seeking justice for crime victims and their families. But these missing girls, some of whom I knew, it's personal. Cases I've been investigating for the past 11 years. I've become close to these families. I've experienced their pain. I've made promises. And I don't feel I can stop until I find answers. This is Paper Ghosts. For Ken and Patty Wendell, their involvement in the missing cases began in 2015 when they relocated to my hometown, Ellington, Connecticut. They're middle-aged, wholesome, good people who've been married about 30 years. They own a used bookstore in town that their son runs. I've gotten to know them pretty well over the past few years and visit them from time to time to catch up. The Wendells remind me of my neighbors back in the day, growing up around here. People who do anything for you and expect nothing in return. Yeah, yeah. Side starts at the beginning of Wendell Road, where it hits Route 30. Ken is an electrician. He wears glasses and reminds me of one of those guys who can fix anything. Behind my house, that was. His wife Patty looks much younger than her age. She speaks with that King of Queens Long Island accent. There's a toughness I sense in Patty. If nothing else, she is tenacious unafraid to say exactly how she feels. They were excited to move to the country. It was a dream, something they'd always wanted to do. Settle down in quiet country life, surrounded by woods. They spent years commuting back and forth from their hectic life in Long Island, New York, to build a house on what is a massive plot of land across the street from a popular summer destination Crystal Lake. But that excitement turned, well, very disturbing, just after finishing the home and settling in. I moved here in October, uh, in the summer of 15, and in October of that year, two Thank detectives you. came to the door. My son was home, and they wanted to talk to the owner of the property, so this 46 It was a state police cold case detective and his partner, who'd recently took over the cases of the missing local girls. And then uh, he said, well, we have a tip. We have a tip. That's how cold cases of this nature generate action and lead to breakthroughs. What is incredible to me is this. After 50 years, five decades, these cases still produce detectives knocking on doors. That alone gives me and the families of the missing hope. Somebody knows something and they share it. 
The Wendells allowed the detective and his partner to walk the property, all 46 acres. They spent two hours. Promising they'd return, the detectives were back a month later. Only this time, they brought along a team of crime scene techs, shovels, a backhoe, and began excavating a water well on the edge of the Wendell's property. They spent the entire day. The dig turned up piles of garbage, an old oven and refrigerator. But get this, inside that water well, they recovered five pairs of children's saddle shoes. Alarming, yes, but why five pairs? Were these at all related to the missing girls I've been investigating? Or was it an anomaly? More junk tossed into the woods. The Wendells assumed the police would return and continue searching their land. But instead, Patty and Ken grew kind of frustrated after not hearing anything for quite some time. It's as if the state police completely gave up. They would not even answer texts or emails in a timely fashion. And when they did, the response was generic and disappointing. But Ken, well, he's a task guy. Get in there and get your hands dirty. And he refused to let this go. So he continued to search his land himself. So after the cops came by, I started to walk around. And right, looking. yeah. <laughs> and then that's when I found a, uh, a fox had dug a dent. And I could see where he was digging and he ripped open a bag. It was a, a girl's shirt, the buttons, the other side. Ken is talking about finding several pieces of 70s era clothing in a plastic bag. The bag was buried in an abandoned artesian water well in an area on his property where a set of small cabins that Crystal Lake visitors could rent for a weekend or summer vacation during the 60s and early 70s used to be. Think dirty dancing, that kind of atmosphere. This specific area, an old logging road, is overgrown with brush and trees now. Then, after running across that bag of clothes, Ken discovered something else. There was a pair of sneakers sticking out of the ground. I said, get over here and find out what yeah, these are. I mean, all I saw was the sneakers sticking out. Right. So uh, I stopped digging at that point. Ken called the state police, thinking he might have just found a body. One of those missing girls. pocket certainly has not been forgotten in this tight-knit community. Check out this bench that has been dedicated in her memory. You can see 45 years ago today she went missing and it happened just around the corner while she was riding her bike. Janice Pocket was only seven years old when she went missing in 1973. She's the youngest of the missing girls I'm focused on. The Pocket family lived in the town of Tallinn, Connecticut about 20 miles east of capital city, Hartford, and just a few miles from Crystal Lake. At the time, Tallinn, Vernon, and Ellington, where my cases originate, were very rural. Woodsy, the country, totally Mayberry, USA. The road where Janice was last seen was dirt and gravel, surrounded by woods and a Christmas tree farm. Well, it was a three-bed ranch that we lived in wooded on, you know, behind us and on one side. Of course, where the school is now, that was all woods there. That's Mary Engelbreck, who's become a good friend and close confidant over the past 10 years of my investigation. We met online after she realized I was looking into Janice's case. Mary was six when her older sister went missing in 1973. 
She has shoulder-length brown hair and wears glasses. Her cheerful demeanor and kindness are indications she has not allowed Janice's disappearance to destroy her. Today I see a drive in Mary to find her older sibling. We're sitting on a large rock beside her sister's memorial near the last location Janice was seen. It's a hot summer morning. Mary has always seemed anxious to me whenever we meet, but on this day, within this space, she is different, as if in her element, more relaxed and, of course, nostalgic. There was a lot of kids in that a neighborhood. A lot of kids in the neighborhood, oh yeah. It, our, you know, my sister's age and my age, we were always out in the, you know, in the yards playing together. And so tell me, you know, what you remember about Jim's. Well, you know, we, we were both, we liked to play outside. Our big thing was out in the yard. Our, we had a big backyard. We would love to go looking for bugs, butterflies. We were all into that, the nature stuff, picking flowers for our mom all the time. Um, you know, she was older than me. She was definitely my bossy older sister. She would tell me what to do all the time. And I, you know, pretty much would do anything she told me, you know, because she was in charge for sure. And it was, that was okay with me most of the time. You know, we used to fight a lot. I asked Mary about her mother. She was just a, oh, my mom was a sweetheart. <laughs> Everything we did was with my mom because my dad worked a lot, you know. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We were, my sister was a year and a half older than me, so we were very close in age. You know, we did everything together. And my mom was very, you know, we were not allowed out of her sight. I mean, we would play outside all the time, but my mom was always there. You know, we weren't allowed to do go out on our own in the neighborhood at that age. The day she disappeared, do you remember? As clear as day, certain things stick out in my mind. Like we had, um, we had gone grocery shopping. I remember the grocery shopping trip, not so much the actual trip, but when we got home. And I think it's because my sister and I had a huge fight when we got back from the, and I, I can, I can still picture it in my head. My mom was down at the bottom of our basement stairs and she was putting stuff away in a, in a pantry like cabinet we had there. And I, when we had, been shopping, my sister and I both picked out new toothbrushes, and we got back and somehow we were fighting over which whose was whose, like which color was mine and which color was hers. I mean, it seems so silly and ridiculous, but I remember I was crying because I was that upset about it. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just thinking, my poor mom, <laughs> I think it must have driven her crazy. We were fighting over something so silly when you think about it. As a mom now, I know, it's like, here they go again, you know? <laughs> That was July 26, 1973, mid-afternoon, near 3.30 p.m. Sunny, a perfect 73 degrees. Janice decided she needed to do something, and she pleaded with her mother to go alone. The next thing I remember is my sister, and she had asked if she could go on her bike up the road to get the butterfly. And, and I can tell you what that means, because it was earlier in that week, probably a couple days before we were out for a walk with my mom and the dog. I was walking, my sister was riding her bike and my mom had the dog and my sister found, and it was right around the corner here. She found on the side of the road, this butterfly, it was dead, but it was perfect. 
and it was a one of the yellow and black ones. It was perfect. Mary and Janice's mother used to take them for walks down that dirt road. They'd recently gotten a new puppy, so there was a good reason to be out a lot during the summer of 1973. On that day, Janice wore navy blue shorts with an American flag emblem, a striped pullover shirt, and blue sneakers. She had unmistakable strawberry blonde hair, shoulder length, with those 70s era bangs covering her forehead. I can recall her gap-toothed smile from her second grade class photo, an image that has stuck with me since growing up in this area. That photo on a missing person flyer was everywhere. So she tucked it behind a rock that was on the side of the road. And I think thinking, I'll come back, we'll get it the next time we walk or whatever. Walking it, Mary and I figured out the distance was uh, about a third of a mile from her childhood home. This was far for a seven-year-old on a bike. You left the pocket home, took a right out of the driveway, went down the road, and came to a stop sign at the beginning of the dirt road. Heading straight, the dirt road took a sharp right hand and then a sharp left-hand turn. Janice had placed the dead butterfly just after the second turn on the side of the road behind a rock. I know it was a Thursday, just only because of knowing that now, but, and I, my sister asked him, could she go get the butterfly? And normally my mother would have said, no, just wait and let's go take a walk. But I think, you know, she was trying to put stuff away and was probably sick of us fighting. That's what I'm just thinking in my head. And I remember her saying, go quick and come right back. Janice was given permission to go it alone for the first time. Her mother gave her a blank envelope to put the butterfly in. She then hopped on her bike and rode down the driveway, hit the street, and headed back to the dirt road to get the butterfly. My God, what an image. A seven-year-old in July on her bike going to get a butterfly. This image is something no one in this area to this day has forgotten. You bring up Janice's name, and they talk about that butterfly. As she hit the dirt road and took that first corner, Janice's pocket vanished. The last time anybody ever saw her. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
oldest girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. And my best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
picture this. On the day Janice disappeared, one of the pocket's neighbors, Nancy McDonald, was at home down the road approximately a quarter mile away. On that July afternoon near 3.30 p.m., Nancy left her house to run to the store. She drove up her street, turned left, then headed down the road, passing the pocket home, before coming to that stop sign where the dirt road began. After introducing myself, Nancy invited me inside for a chat. Sitting down in her kitchen, Nancy told me a story about the day Janice went missing that, quite honestly, was difficult to hear. I was the only one that saw anything, and I decided all I was doing was going for a gallon of milk. When she arrived at the intersection just past the pocket house, Nancy saw something that grabbed her attention. It was a blue four-door station wagon parked, blocking the road, the actual route she was planning to take to the store. The car was positioned sideways, east to west, not north to south, as the dirt road ran. Back then, this entire area was secluded. Woods on both sides, no homes. I couldn't get through because Rhodes Road goes this way. His car was like that. I thought when I come back, if that car is still there blocking the road, I'm going to get out and get his license plate. Nancy could not continue straight. That vehicle forced her to take a hard left and drive around, taking the longer back way to the store. And no sooner did she begin to take that left, Nancy saw something else. It was a guy. Nobody was in the car. He was walking. I'll show you how. That's what made me wonder, too. Nancy stood and began mimicking a slow walk. The only way I saw his face was side two. He didn't completely turn around, but I think he heard my car. And he was walking that way. Looking ahead, very quietly. Made you wonder, what the heck? Like he was peering, looking for something. Yes. Yes. He turned sideways, and where you're starting a little bit right here. Nancy pointed to my hairline. To recede. That's how his head was, and he had brown hair. And he had a gold watch on his left wrist. Boy, you remember that vividly. Plus, the outfit he had on was those green shirts and pants that workers wear, or did back then, that's what he was wearing. Yes, because it haunted me all this time. I can see it as if it just happened. I looked for years to find out what kind of a car that was, and I think it was a Plymouth. Nancy described the man as six foot, six two, brown hair, skinny, wearing green khaki pants and a green khaki shirt, walking stealthily as if lurking or perhaps stalking someone. Remember, this was just after Janice Pocket left her driveway and pedaled her bike down that same road in the same direction the man was now walking. She definitely described a guy in a uniform. That car placement, too, is interesting to me. But why was he unafraid of being seen? And Nancy's description of him, For years up to this point, during my investigation, I had been hearing about a local guy who fit the same description. A guy who, within it all, was becoming for me much more than a person of interest.
something about the scene didn't feel right to Nancy. She had kids at home waiting for her with a teenage babysitter, so she was in kind of a hurry. Nancy hesitated, for a moment thinking she should write down the license plate number. But because of the direction the station wagon was parked, she would have to stop, get out, and walk around the vehicle. So she turned left and headed to the store. Still, that image of the station wagon blocking the road gnawed at her. Her gut was speaking. Something was wrong. So, you come back from the store, the car's gone. Gone. You go home. Yep. What happens next? What happens next is we find out that she's been taken and the police and everybody is all over the neighborhood. It just made me sick. Hundreds of volunteers descended upon the neighborhood with the focus on the dirt road and surrounding woods. In lines, holding hands, dozens of people conducted grid searches. They combed the land slowly. Dogs, men, women, children, people on horseback, even helicopters flying overhead, all looking for a seven-year-old girl who could have been anyone's child. They put up paper flyers on telephone poles, handed them out at the grocery. The town's mayor delivered more than 100,000 signatures to President Richard Nixon, urging him to get the FBI involved. The town's reaction was already on high alert because this wasn't the first child to go missing in the community. Some years before, the first of the girls I've been investigating had also disappeared. Early belief, which would actually give Janice's abductor a major head start, was that Janice Pocket had wandered off into the woods and gotten lost. To double check, I asked Nancy, if Janice had left her home on her bicycle that afternoon, which we know she did, is this the direction she would have gone? Okay, so she comes out into the road and goes down, and this turns not too far. And they didn't find her bike till over here. That photo of Janice's green bike lying on its side on the dirt road is chilling. And the only piece of evidence in any of the abduction cases. The Connecticut State Police still have the bike. They found no DNA or blood. The butterfly and or the envelope were never found. Seeing Janice's bike with its striped banana seat, old school fenders and missing middle support bar without her on it powerfully displays how heart-wrenching this tragedy and those like it are. Here's Janice's sister, Mary, talking about that day. I just remember seeing the bike and then my mom calling for Janice. Like she probably thought, oh, she's in the woods or something, you know, or whatever. I just remember her obviously getting more panicked. I asked Nancy McDonald, the pocket neighbor going off to the store, what small town country living turned into after Janice disappeared. Oh, everybody was just vigilant. They really were. Everybody was. How could you not be? I mean, some of the families had four or five kids. It wasn't like there was a lot of traffic ever, right. except when people came home from work. I mean, we kind of tucked away. 
Indeed, that old cliche rang true. Everybody knew everybody. With all of those kids in the neighborhood, a neighborhood off the beaten path, if you did not live there, there was no reason to be there. Unless, that is, you had other, maybe nefarious, intentions. The search for Janice Pocket and information about her abduction continued for decades. Investigators dug in, including the FBI, but came up with nothing substantial. It was not until recently, after 10 years of looking into Janice's case myself, that I began to piece together some answers and develop new leads. And wouldn't you know it, that new information sends me right back to where I started, Crystal Lake. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. 
Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Crystal Lake has always been a popular summer retreat for area residents in the towns of Ellington, Vernon, and Tolland. Boating, swimming, fishing, water skiing, lake house barbecues. It's a small lake, just under 200 total acres, but very deep in some parts. At the time of the disappearances, late 60s, early 70s, this area was thriving. It was the major middle point stop for people traveling between Hartford and Boston. Gas up, grab a hot dog, lemon ice, use the restroom, Janice and Mary's mother often took the kids to the lake during the summer, living so close to Ellington. My work on the missing girl cases over the past decade has been a slow climb. I followed false leads, chased the wrong suspects, had sources stop answering my calls, and doors slammed in my face. But I stuck with it. Then, In early 2019, I received a call that set my investigation on the move. It was from Ken and Patty Wendell, the couple I mentioned in the beginning of this episode. They'd built their dream home across the street from Crystal Lake on all that land they own, where a dozen or more water wells are scattered about. They initially reached out to me several years ago. After Googling the missing girls' names, and running into all the work I've done investigating the disappearances. Every one of these cases, Debbie Spickler, 1968, Janice Pocket, 1973, Lisa Joy White, 1974, 
got a jolt of adrenaline after I wrote an article for Connecticut Magazine and produced an episode of my former cold case television series, Dark Minds on Investigation Discovery. The article dropped and the episode aired the same week in 2013. People were interested again. Law enforcement stepped up. A task force was created and $150,000 allocated for information leading to an arrest and conviction. A new missing persons flyer featuring the three youngest victims was created, posted all around town, and spread on the internet. Hundreds of tips came in. I received emails, phone calls, social media messages. Through that, I was able to develop multiple new sources, the Wendells included. It's April 2019, and I'm paying them another visit. It's one of those dreary New England days, gray skies, a cold rain coming down. Yeah. Love it. Hello. Hi, Patty. Yeah, this is Mary. Hi, Patty. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. This is Janice Pocket's <coughs> sister. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Hey, how you been? How you been? Good. Good to see you guys. On this day, Mary has come with me to meet Ken and Patty Wendell. For the past few years, I've been telling Mary about the Crystal Lake connection I've developed and the Wendells. I thought it was time she meet them, and we walked the property, all of us, together. I can tell Mary is nervous. She has this funny way of hugging herself, as if she's cold when she's anxious. As Patty and Mary are busy chit-chatting, Ken tells me about a recent discovery. It's actually my neighbor found down in the woods right off of that road when you come in, a memorial with um, flowers nailed to a tree. Really? That was, it says an RIP and uh, a recent one? Yeah, this is the weird part. It was, it looks like it was put in within the last 10 years. Flowers tacked to a tree with an inscription carved in the bark, like young lovers might do with a pocket knife. It cannot be a roadside cross memorial, same as you'd see on the shoulder of the street after a deadly accident. This tree is in the middle of a wooded area, not far from where several of those water wells are located. Ken continues, making a great point. Who would have put but, this um, in the middle of the woods? Later, at a later date, it's like somebody came yeah, back and put a memorial. It was just weird finding it. No, that, you know, that's, that's, that's something. People like to come back. Yeah. People love to come back to places where they've done stuff to see what's going on. Right. Standing at that flower memorial with Crystal Lake directly in front of you about 200 yards away, you can see the water glistening, the lake houses along the water's edge. In front of this memorial, however, there is a large divot in the ground, about the size of three compact cars. It's as if something underneath the ground had given and caved in. Before leaving the Wendells, I asked Ken if he could find out if there were any water wells right there, where the divot is. Mary's never been to this particular location. Just across the street from the lake, on the east side, there's an area of land where it's been thought throughout the years her sister Janice's body is buried on the Wendell's property. Ken's discovery of the flower memorial isn't the only reason we're here. There's been some activity up here again recently by the Connecticut State Police. They've been digging.
The state police were finally digging, but they were focused on a well at the edge of the Wendell property in an area about 200 yards across the street from Crystal Lake. It was on Pine Street, just after you make the corner from Wendell Road. You embark down a slight slope into the edge of the woods and you arrive at the well about 20 to 30 yards in. Four state police detectives, excavating equipment, crime scene techs, all sifting through more than 50 years of earth and garbage and buried secrets. The state police are acting on a recent tip they'd received stating that a body is buried in one of the water wells across the street from Crystal Lake. That immediately makes me think, who left the tip? If it's connected to the Janice pocket case, what kind of person would wait almost five decades before telling the police? And... Is it even credible? If the state police have been digging, this tip means something. There has always been the suggestion that Janice Pocket's body is either in the lake or buried somewhere nearby. But not long after Mary and I arrive at the Wendells to look into her sister Janice's abduction, I'm given information that turns all these cases upside down and forces me to look in an entirely new direction. It turns out the state police weren't there looking for Janice Pocket's body. They had come out to search for someone else. A new name. A name I have not heard connected to any of my cases in the decade I've been at it. A young woman who lived just miles from Janice Pocket's home, directly across the street from Crystal Lake. A young woman, I'll soon find out, who could be related to the mysterious man Janice's neighbor, Nancy McDonald, allegedly saw the day she disappeared. And get this, she was reported missing in 2016, and yet, incredibly, the last time anyone had seen her? 45 years before, in 1971. And as I continued to investigate Janice Pocket's case, I stumbled onto something that could change the entire game for me. Information telling me that this new missing girl might not actually be missing at all. In fact, I think she could still be alive. And if she is, well, I'm going to find her. In the next episode of Paper Ghosts, I remember that and I didn't want to be, especially right after it happened, when you would see posters, I almost felt embarrassed because I didn't want people thinking that my mother was a bad mother. We always had that code, never by ourselves to check. So if one of us is alone, too bad, you walk it, however far it is. That was the code you had? We had a code, yeah. So I don't know though, because you know, she was upset. We were all upset over what happened and getting in trouble and thinking we can never be friends again. She had, you know, a couple of girlfriends her age. The, the males that she was hanging with, five, six, even seven years older. Young men, not the best influences. Paper Ghosts is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, with help from producer Christina Everett and sound editing by Pete Cardi from Backroom Audio. A special thanks to Lauren Pacchio, along with Abu Safar 
and Will Pearson from iHeartRadio. The series theme, 442, is written and performed by Tom Mooney and Thomas Phelps. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.